Welcome to Croaky Voices. I'm Kate Carrigan. I pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation on whose land this podcast is being made and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people whose country is home to my guests. I acknowledge them as the first custodians of the land, seas and waterways of Australia and pay respect to their culture and knowledges that have sustainably cared for country for thousands of years. World leaders gathered in Glasgow for the UN's COP26 climate summit with the aim of ending greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 against a background of increasing severe weather events. After a week of what's being called apocalyptic fires raging across Greece, fire risk remains extremely high. Germany is witnessing once in a millennium floods, the worst floods in a thousand years. Wildfires devastating the West Coast and other parts of the country from California from to From ferocious Mexico bushfires in Europe and North America in 2021 to increasingly searing summers, violent storms, droughts and bushfires in Australia and melting polar glaciers. For First Nations people around the world, with strong and abiding connection to country, evidence is mounting that they will bear the brunt of inaction. A country is our mother. It feeds us. She look after us. But now it's very poor. And, you know, it's very sad seeing my country like that. Because of this climate change, it, it, it has like the heat that we received and the changes. The bush tucker that we collect seasonally is all dried. This time on Croaky Voices, a call to listen to the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on climate change and centre their knowledges in mitigation and abatement strategies. A rallying cry reinforced at a recent roundtable organised by the Lewitcher Institute in partnership with the National Health Leadership Forum and the Climate and Health Alliance. All around the world, sea levels are rising. And so are First Nations people. My name is Norman Dibberola Frank, and I'm speaking on Warramunga country. And I'm plus I'm a Warramunga elder and a leader from Tennant Creek, and I'm speaking in behalf of my people. And I'm Simon Quilty. I'm uh, on Aranda country in Alice Springs. Uh, I'm a doctor, and I've lived and worked up here in the Northern Territory for most of the last 20 years now. Mr Jipperula and Simon Quilty are long-time friends and partners in acting on and undertaking research to address some of the inequities in the lives of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory, such as inadequate and overcrowded housing and power poverty, issues exacerbated by climate change. I spoke to them both, first asking Norman Jipperula Frank about the impact of climate change on his country. Well, this climate change has been changing nearly... Every year, you know, or nearly every time we notice the country been changing because of the seasons doesn't really match with our climate around in our country how it used to be. The winter comes early, sometimes late. The rain comes in the wrong season, probably in winter time, sometimes after winter or sometimes during winter. So all them sort of things never happen, you know. We need to have, you know, wet season, like... And cold weather, we used to call them Wanakakana. Hot weather, summertime, we used to call it Gilyake. 
All people used to say, you know, when it used to get hotter, the sun coming down a bit closer, but now it's really hot. Now, you know, it came down really rotten out over the years. And not only that, the animals coming out in the wrong season. And they breed, I think they breed at the wrong time for something wrong with them, you know. You can notice that, you know, you see babies, guana, little lizards, you know, you usually come out when it's warm. But sometimes you see them in wintertime, they're all sitting up on on the rocks and bathing. But we, we notice that, you know, everything's all changing now. So the country has been telling you for a long time that things are changing, that something's happening. Yep, that's right. They've been telling us for a long time because we didn't know what climate change was until, you know, people come and talked about climate change and justice, what 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 climate change is doing to our country. Now we're starting to wake up. Same like me. When I was a kid, I never heard of climate change. Now I'm starting to realise what climate change is doing to our, to our country. It's doing a lot of damage. How does that make you feel as people who have been part of a culture that's been there for thousands of years, seeing your country change and seeing these things happen? Well, I, I can tell you, because I always tell Simon, I feel sorry for my country. As I walk my country and look at my country dying and very poor, and I, I feel sad. It doesn't only impact the country, impact my us spiritually too. You know? we, we connected to the land very close. We, we connected to our country by song lines, by spiritual Mother Earth, we call Kanindikari Manu, we call our country, our mother's ground, you know, our country is our mother. It feeds us, she look after us, but now it's very poor, and, you know, it's very sad seeing my country like that. You spoke as well of inadequate housing and major problems with electricity supply. Can you tell me what's happening? Yes, so this is, uh, this is some research that really started one time when I was driving from Cashin to Alice Springs and I stopped with Norm and it was in January and it was really hot. And uh, when, when my family camped with Norm's family, I realised how much electricity Norm was going through and we talked a bit about it. Norm showed me how he purchases power through a prepaid meter and how complicated it is and how hard it was for he and his family to keep money in the meter, particularly when it was so hot and when Norm's house wasn't the best design for that kind of hot weather. So me and Norm talked a lot about it. And then, Norm, when you visited my house, remember you looked at my roof and then solar panels? Yeah. And and Norm said, why haven't I got panels on my roof? And you told me that that the panels on your roof, you don't pay much electricity. So I said, oh, geez, I wouldn't mind having one of them. And then you said, well, we can try to get one for you. So, you know, we try. And now I'm, at the moment, I've got one on my roof right now, you know, and it's been up there nearly three months. It's only going to take only one switch to switch on, but I'm still waiting, still waiting on power and water. When Norman and I did this research, as a kind of research that we do together, we call it shaking the bush. We want immediate action to these injustices. So we did the research that showed the numbers of Indigenous poverty, and Norman and a number of Aboriginal people felt that they just wanted a house the same as mine with panels on the roof, and they didn't have to worry about it. So we knew that there was no remote Indigenous houses with panels on the roof, and so we decided that we just fix it with Norm's house and we'd record all of the barriers 
to getting panels on the roof. And the first barrier was Department of Housing. And they said that they, they couldn't assume the structural integrity of Norm's roof because the building code for, for a lot of these houses is, is, has failed for many years. So we had to get an engineer to inspect the roof. And then the second thing that happened, they made Norm sign a waiver that when he moves on from his tenancy, that he's responsible for the cost of removing the panels and inverter. And so then we started dealing with Power and Water Corp uh, around getting electricity hooked up to his house. And they are no longer communicating with us. And all they need to do is flick the switch on and Norm will get almost free electricity. And how hot is it there today, Norm? It's not too hot today, is it? No, not too hot. It's about oh, 38, 39, coming not, up to 40. Not, not too hot, coming up to 40. Yeah. You got the aircon on? Yep, I'm sitting inside an aircon right now. I've got chronic disease, you know. I'm, I've got a, I've a problem with kidney. I dialyze three times a week. I've got a crook heart. I'm a diabetes, diabetic. You know, I'm on few, Yeah, that hot weather is dangerous for a bloke like you, isn't it? Yeah, it's very hot. Oh, very dangerous for me. Uh, Kate, the way that the, the energy meters work is you get what's called friendly credit when you run out of power on the weekend. So you continue to accumulate debt on your meter until Monday morning yep. at 9am and then you disconnect and then you've got to pay for that electricity that you've used over the weekend. And because Norm's house requires so much electricity to keep it cool and it's a very humble dwelling, Mm-hmm. Um, Norm doesn't overuse electricity, he just uses what he needs to keep it thermally safe. He may have a $50 debt on a Monday morning. So Norm, when you're faced with having to put all your money into the power box, how often do you have to choose between electricity and food? Well, I'll, I'll put my money against the electricity, mate, because and food, food will come later, but power, it's very important. It's for my fridge as well, see? I've got to stick my medication in the fridge. You've got to be in a cool spot all the time. All my insulin for that because my needles have to be in the, in the cool spot. So now you're hoping those solar panels, your solar panel will finally, maybe, hopefully get connected. What uh, chances are there? When do you think it will happen? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm putting my fingers crossed. I hope, it, I hope they do it any day. And I'm not the only person because people from next door and around me and, and in the community saying, I wish I could do have one like that on my roof too as well. Yeah, I'm just, I'll, I'll, I'll always just say, well, I hope they hook it on for me one day so that I can see how, how it works and how much I spend a week. So Norm, that was one of the key reasons that we decided to do this, wasn't it? Yep. To show leadership and to do this not just for Norm's electricity benefit, but for his community. Norm, you're a very powerful voice in Tennant Creek and you are always fighting for justice, not just for your own family, but for your whole community. Yep. Oh, I, I don't know anything about myself. I think about everybody here in my in my community. You know, always and and surrounding in the Barclay, everybody else too. Well, when we're talking about climate change and the impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, how important is it then at this stage when the world is focused? on trying to find some uh, more tangible future solutions that the voices of community are listened to and these sorts of solutions are put in place? I reckon that the biggest deficit in this at the moment is that people don't listen to the community. Do you agree? Well, it's like you're saying, it's it's the government who makes the choices, but it's the people on the ground. They should listen from the people from the grassroots, 
from the country and from the homelands. Because that politician, you don't know, he come from he come from the city. He come from an air conditioned building. You people they live at bush. They live in cars and in humpies. You should listen from them people to, you know, tell their story and and make the solution out there what they need. Norm, when when we go to your your country where the government gave your land back, mm-hmm. when you took me out there and we went through that country and we saw I saw how healthy it was and, and how how much you insist on keeping cattle off that country and you look at the neighbouring block. Oh, yeah, because we're trying to rehabilitate our country back in, trying to get it back to back where it was before or what it like, you know, when we maintain it, burn it. And we, we burn it once a year. In the right time, we do controlled burning. And, and, and we're trying to see what it's like after... You know, after wood season, after on his dry season, and then what it's like when we without a cattle on that country, and see what can grow back there. So that's what we do under our country. You now we, we and it's really and it's growing back, isn't it? It's, it's amazing. coming back. Yeah, we've got water lilies coming back. Everything you know, we've got bird life. We've got and everything coming back on that country you now. And, but then you know when you when you when you think about that really those two really hot summers we had a couple of years back then the real scorches when when those waterholes yeah. dried up that's a new thing and that's that then waterholes drying up that was because of that extreme summer that's climate change isn't it yeah that 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 did that really did you know destroyed my country and now it's coming back to life but the trees went black everything. Like a bushfire went through my country, but there wasn't a bushfire. It was just nothing was left. Not even a lizard, not even a bird life. But now it's all coming back. How important do you think it is then for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices to lead the conversation as Australia looks at these solutions or actions to address climate change? Oh, yeah, Oregon and... We should be telling more stories to our young people, and I think and sharing with learning, you know, probably you, you know, two ways. Spiritual, we we see this country; it can be dead, it can be, you know, scorched, burnt to the ground, but it's still alive. Our people need to say there's another home up there for animals and for people, and that story still lives today. And and it's true, because when we have a drought, we can have two years, three years drought. All these animals can go away. Everybody say they must be all dead and all died out. But no, something take them, take them away up there to that another place in the sky. When they come out, as soon as the rain, when the ground is wet, they come out as soon as they hear the thunder. Hey, hey, hey I'll be fat go and I come up straight away after the rain. Now he's come from the sky. We, we, we shocked. When we see something like that, and then then I'll always say, even coming from another another place, Ghana, another home up there. You know, I don't think that many non-Aboriginal people understand how deep and powerful your knowledge is of the land, of the earth, of the country, and and that to me has never been more important. And me as a doctor, I I look at after people's health, but I'm like, well, what's the point of keeping people healthy if our land upon which we live is dying? 
Because, like I say, we connected to the land. You know, always, I always say, spiritually, we very connected to our country. Everything you do to our country, it impacts us as well. And the climate's going to change more and more. And I think we need to educate our kids now, early, before it's too late. My name is Vanessa Napoli Davis. My uh, father's side is Walpi, and my mother's side is Aranda, Northern Aranda. We don't have any system in the house or uh, insulations, and we have prepaid meters. When it's hot, we use more power and can't always keep the power running because of uh, financial difficulties. Split system is pretty expensive for our mob of the town camps. Not only does it have an effect on the powers and financial problems that we have in all Aboriginal communities. And when we used to go hunting for bush tucker, we used to collect them on the seasons. Like, you know, we know that what season we'll collect this lot of group of um, bush medicines or bush tucker. But then because of this climate change, it, it's, it has like the heat that we received and the changes. The bush tucker that we collect seasonally is all dried, it's been produced a little bit later, and the heat has done so much damage to the fruit trees and the grass, plant on the dirt, you know, because we dig up a lot of some stuff and we finally knew some fine things underground, but now we like wild onion and wild yam. When we dig it up now, we can't find any, and the, and if we do find some, it's not the actual size that it's supposed to be. So without that access to the bush tucker and the bush medicine that you've had in the past, that means then you have to rely more on more expensive food that you might have to buy from the local stores? That's true. It also impact on our health and well-being as well because um, the food that we get from the takeaway shops are greasy and fatty and then... And, and, all these chronic um, illness take place within Aboriginal people. The risk of um, catching all these, um, like diabetes and heart disease, and you name all those chronic illness, is very high because we rely on too much takeaway food. Even though there's like fruit and veg and other stuff in the shops, because of the heat. Nobody don't want to cook in the heat, so they just go opt for the takeaway food. You were talking to the round table about the inadequate housing that you mentioned before. It gets very hot in those houses, doesn't it? And you have to rely mm. on air conditioning or electric fans and the power supply is expensive and cuts off. Yes, that's true, because we've got this prepaid power meters connected to our houses, but the houses itself, it's not built for the weather that we have here in Central Australia. It's hot during summer, very hot, and it's during winter, it's really cold. And then we have to go and buy all these stuff, such as air conditioning fans, and it costs a lot of money to run those air conditioning fans during the hot system. And during winter, we buy all these different kinds of heaters, but we just get heaters just to keep the house warm. The cost of running those is pretty high too, and then we don't have much money. We rely on sandling, and sandling is a fortnight payment, and 
sometimes everything runs out before the next pay and then food gets boiled if we had to have a power out because of don't have enough money to buy power and then uh, can't wash our clothes for the kids to go to school or can't have shower or people with chronic disease such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease, they suffer when the power's off because they need power to keep their food and medication as well. You were also mentioning that one solution could be solar energy and it's all around yet it hasn't been used. Why? Because when they came to refurbish their houses, they took out the solar hot water system and pot belly stove that we had in their houses, took them away, and they replaced them with booster hot water system that can stay hot for a while. And then when a lot of people use the hot water, then it turns cold during winter, we've noticed. And the pot belly stoves were removed from the houses and there was nothing left to replace it. So everybody has to buy all these heaters and during summer, extra fans and air conditioner keep it cool. And then they don't realise how expensive they are to run. The experiences of Norman Japarula Frank and Vanessa Napaljari Davis were reflected in the findings of the discussion paper Climate Change in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health, which formed a jumping-off point for the roundtable. It was prepared by researchers from the Healthy Environments and Lives HEAL Network and the Centre for Research Excellence in Strengthening Systems for Indigenous Healthcare Equity. So my name is Veronica Matthews. I'm a proud Kwandamuka woman from North Stradbroke Island, Manjarabar in Queensland. I'm lucky enough to be working as a Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health systems researcher with the University Centre for Rural Health, which is based on Bundjalung country in Lismore, northern New South Wales. And Veronica, you are the lead researcher for the discussion paper. We've heard of inadequate housing for Aboriginal communities in Central Australia and of energy poverty. How common is that across the country? So the stories from Uncle Norm and Vanessa during the roundtable are are really important for us to hear because our voice is currently missing from the uh, discussion on climate change and how it's going to impact Australian communities. We do know that it's quite a common experience for First Nations communities across the globe that they are currently experiencing severe environmental challenges related to to climate change. The IPCC report makes clear that we are already locked into at least a certain amount of warming between 1 to 1.5 degrees centigrade. And what what this means for for communities now is that they're, they're seeing catastrophic impacts, the prolonged heat waves that Uncle Norm was discussing you know, the fact that um, seasonal calendars that guided the availability of bush tucker that have been known for generations are becoming out of whack. So our food sources are disappearing. There are ancient water holes drying up. And the Torres Strait Islander communities, the sea level rise is, is threatening their way of life. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities tend to be the first to be impacted from, from climate change. There really are rolling consequences. So the increased likelihood of extreme events such as extreme heat, drought, bushfires, cyclones, floods and rising sea levels, they are reducing our access to nutritional bush tucker, to fresh water resources. And as we heard from Uncle Norm, our housing infrastructure is often not 
adequately protective against these environmental changes. So these exacerbate already unacceptable levels of chronic disease in our communities, uh, not to mention the damage that is done to important cultural sites. So all of this impacts our mental health and well-being. And when we see our country sick, we are sick. So really profound impact there on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and First Nations people across the globe. But you do point out in the discussion paper that the crisis offers a chance to empower First Nations voices to lead climate action and to lead the planning in strategies to mitigate these impacts. Well, we heard from the roundtable as well that solutions to these challenges are within our community. And it's come from the fact that we've sustainably cared for this country over millennia. We've maintained biodiversity. We've continually adapted to gradual changes in the environment. So our our culture is closely intertwined with, with country. We are very acutely attuned to it. Previously, our active role in managing country, for example, through practices like cultural burning, There has been evidence that this has enhanced biodiversity and resilience of of ecosystems. And there is emerging recognition of the value of these traditional knowledges and increasing calls from international organisations like the IPCC to listen to Indigenous knowledge to inform climate change, mitigation and adaptation. There was a recent systematic review that looked at a global map of published studies on the use of Indigenous knowledges for for climate change adaptation. And what the systematic review highlighted was that Australia was a geographical gap. So the review located over 200 pieces of original research, of which only around 5% originated from the Australasia region. You know, there is a real need, particularly in our region, to start listening to community. And if we are clever, we can work together to design approaches to protect country. But it needs to be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led. Our current laws and, and policies around land and water management are far too weighed towards corporate profiteering. And we draw on the example of the extinguishment of, of native title in Wangan and Jungalingu community in the Galilee Basin to make way for the Adani coal mine. You think that native title is an instrument that really promotes our, our rights, but the current legislation doesn't really work for our mob. There has been a history, I guess, in this country of government ceding only a certain degree of control, and we won't really have self-determination until we address these power imbalances. That's why we're saying right now that climate change is an opportunity here for that redress. When it comes to the climate change planning, I mean, if anything is going to affect our future, this, this current challenge is. So listening to us will ultimately, I think, benefit the whole of the country. And the main strategies you'd like to see come out of COP26 that incorporate these messages and the voice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and First Nations people? Stride and, and Heal, who were the, uh, the collaborations that pulled together the discussion paper, we were fortunate enough to receive some funding recently from the Australian Research Council to enable more of the storytelling and weaving together of knowledges for self-determined climate change planning. It's led by Aboriginal communities in urban, regional and remote areas. And the project aims to 
centre our knowledges and bring it together with environmental and health data to create community story data maps. These will be interactive and online. It will provide a rich evidence base for communities to use as an advocacy tool. It will really form a unique and powerful combination of information that will support decision-making and communication around the co-design of local climate change mitigation and adaptation plans. It gives agency to Aboriginal communities in leading a process around systems change that will see the like of the, the situation that Uncle Norm spoke about being addressed through that intersectorial collaboration based on evidence and with Aboriginal voices at the centre to reduce environmental risks and strengthen our health and wellbeing. It is our right and our responsibility to look after country. We follow in the footsteps of our ancestors, fighting for country, for culture and our future. We are seedball and our movement is growing. My name's um, Millie Telford. I'm National Director of the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. I'm a Bundjalung and South Sea Islander woman um, and I am calling in from Wurundjeri country in Preston on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Millie, with world leaders meeting for COP26, what's the message from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people to those world leaders? Our message echoed right across the country and right across the world is that First Nations people are not only on the front lines of the climate crisis facing the impacts here and now, but it's our communities that are stepping up and leading the way when our political leaders aren't showing us the leadership that we need. And so we're really disappointed in the lack of ambition that Scott Morrison and his government are taking into the UN climate negotiations. But more so, we're frustrated. We've been saying this for a long time, that our lands and waters need to be protected. We need to be moving away from fossil fuels and we need to be investing in our future. Um, And time and time again, our communities are ignored. But I think what we're showing and demonstrating is we're not waiting for anyone to step up and do this for us. It's been a growing motivation, growing network of young people who are wanting to learn more about how the issue of climate change impacts our communities and how we can play a massive role in in leading the solutions as we move forward and build a future moving forward. For our people and, and in particular young people, it's not only an issue that impacts our future, it's impacting us right now. And for our mob, everything comes back to country. You know, country is a part of who we are. It's our identity. It's how we connect to one another. Our, our songs are in the land. Our stories are in the land. And, and so I think for young people, our vision for the future is aligned. And I think, you know, we've been out having conversations in communities for many years now about what's going on, what are the changes people people are seeing because of climate change, you know, what's the destruction of country, but also what are people's visions for the future and and where would people rather our government be funneling more investment and more support, you know, and, and listening to the voices of communities. So, yeah, without a doubt, young people are fired up. And if anything, there's such a massive appetite that we actually need more resourcing to be able to deal with it because people want to be able to support so much. And that, you know, that was the thing that stood out to me as we have more and more of these young with our mob is that we need the resources to be able to lead this and lead it our way. And what would you like to see adopted to incorporate the knowledges of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other First Nations people to mitigate climate change? 
Well, it's really simple. It comes back to, you know, decision making and who's in positions of power and leadership. The root causes of all of these issues come back to the same root causes that our people are being impacted by other issues. Ever since colonisation and invasion in this country, our people have been treated awfully and we've been left behind and our culture and our people get seen as second best. And yet we looked after this land sustainably for tens of thousands of years. We hold the knowledge, the value systems that allow us to live sustainably. There's two laws in this country, Aboriginal law and Western law. And it's time for Western law to catch up to our law, where we take our responsibility seriously. We have values that are about looking after one another, looking after country. And when you're led by that, and when that's at the forefront of every decision you make, then that's where you can make decisions that benefit future generations, not put them in worse off positions than where we're at now. So I think it comes back to decision making and, and in particular, being able to see that protection of cultural heritage and land rights and now more being able to make decisions about what happens on our country. Within that are the solutions to the climate crisis. You know, there's even reports globally around the world, in particular, the Indigenous Environmental Network in the US did a report recently that showed that Indigenous-led resistance across Canada and the US is directly responsible for cutting emissions by a quarter of the US and Canada's emissions. And that's huge. It shows that Indigenous leadership is critical and that those whose country and whose land is being dug up and destroyed or proposed to be dug up and destroyed, they need to be a part of standing strong and being empowered to lead the solutions. And what we know is that, you know, our country needs to be protected and we need to keep all new fossil fuels in the ground, knowing that that's a major contributor to the climate crisis. And how can getting together at events like the Lawicha Institute Organised Roundtable help empower and centre Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the responses to the climate emergency? I think the way that our mob work best is when we come together and we have yarns, we have conversations and we create spaces where everyone can be a part of building plans for how we move forward. And I think that's what stood out to me about the Roundtable on Climate Change was that it was bringing together so many people who share so many of the struggles but also the vision and the ideas for what we need to do and just creating space to have those conversations and from there magic happens you know there's so much that can come out of it and then it's up to us to be able to follow through on that and make that happen and I can't wait to be able to do more and more face-to-face events again soon but even in the meantime we can still connect online and it was really wonderful to be a part of that space because you know I remember being fresh out of high school just sort of short of 10 years ago when I first started doing this work supporting Indigenous leadership on the issue of climate change and to have been the only young black person in a room of people talking about climate change to then going to that event just recently by Loitcher Institute where it felt like you know over 50 to 100 mob coming together talking about how we can play a leadership role it just gave me so much hope and validation I guess that this is the work that we need to be doing and it may have taken some time for us to really be able to come together but for me that also goes back to the issue that climate change has been tossed around like a political football for far too long and it's been seen as an issue that scientists in white coats are the experts on But when it comes to climate action for us, it's about protecting country. And in terms of who the experts are on country, that's us as First Nations people. And so we absolutely have a critical role to play in being a part of leading the solutions to the climate crisis and the way we deal with the massive humanitarian issue that we have on our hands right now. My name's Josie. I'm a Gumbangia woman based on Darawal land. Can you tell me about Heal Country, Heal Climate? The Heal Country, Heal Climate 
was a webinar series that I attended in NAIDOC week this year, hosted by the Indigenous Peoples Organisation of Australia in partnership with Better Futures Australia. Some of the webinar series included Custodians of Country, Healing Our Waterways, Healing Our Lands, Community Healing and Pursuing Global Justice. I was so inspired by what I heard that when I had the opportunity to return to have a conversation with some of the key leaders and elders from all around the country working in the space of healing country to heal climate, I was more than honoured to volunteer as a steering committee member. Part of this process was a whole range of people coming together to start writing recommendations for the COP26 summit, recommendations for the Australian government on how to address climate change, particularly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices being in positions of leadership because we do know how to care for country because it is this land that we cared for for over 60,000 years. And that led me to being involved in the writing up of the community health section because I guess it's the axis of land health, water health and community health. I work as an Indigenous research assistant at the University of Wollongong in the School of Medicine, and I've worked in the space of health and education for a very long time. And through the coordinating that section of the recommendations report, I was linked in with Lowitcher Institute, and I was invited to a roundtable to look at the incredible report that is being written and coming out of that space in partnership. It is so important that there is space for Indigenous leadership and voices to be at the forefront within all the intersections of addressing climate change. And do you think that roundtable is going to help emphasise those voices, those voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their knowledges, so that people will take notice and take on board these strategies at COP26? I absolutely think that spaces like the Lowitch Institute, spaces like the Indigenous Peoples Organisation of Australia are at the forefront and the cutting edge of all of the different intersections, of all of the different spaces and people and community individuals that contribute to this important topic. So I absolutely think that everyone involved in these spaces, including SEED, are so important to to fostering and nurturing and pushing forward the importance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership in caring for country and healing climate. As part of the work to centre and empower Indigenous voices and knowledges, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers and scientists are gathering and collating evidence and stories from communities across the country. One young researcher who took part in the roundtable works at the CSIRO. I'm Mibu Fisher, a marine ethnoecologist with CSIRO, and I am an Unakunugi and Grunpo woman from Kondamuka country. 
um, up in southeast Queensland. But I currently live and work on Mwanina country in Nipaluna, which is Hobart in Lutruwita or Tasmania. I have a particular interest in traditional knowledges or Indigenous science and knowledge and being able to incorporate that within marine and coastal research in general. More recently, my focus and interests have shifted towards climate change impacts to communities and how I can use my position here at CSIRO as a researcher to help empower and enable communities to be a part of decision-making processes and um, to really get involved and have their voices heard in this climate change space. What kind of impacts have you seen? A lot of the impacts I've seen so far are around changes to species, particularly here in Tasmania. It's a hotspot for climate change at the moment. So there's a lot of pressure on various ecosystems here. One of them is the kelp forests, which have been impacted from sea urchins. So they've really changed the environment here. And Unfortunately, mariner shells, which is a really important cultural practice, live on kelp and other large brown macroalgae in these environments. And the traditional owners here have started to notice over the years that there's been a reduce in abundance of various species that make up the mariner shells that are used in that art process. And also um, they've noticed a decrease to the shell thickness so they're becoming more brittle and more difficult to use in shell stringing Um, and then we have the really obvious ones that we have seen more broadly in the media um, like in the Torres Strait with the sea level and extreme events and, and storm surges related to king tides and things like that that are washing graveyards and homes and making fresh water supplies you know contaminated with salt water there's Stories like that all around the country. It's just about getting those stories out there, I think, and making researchers realise how critical it is to have Indigenous science and knowledge as part of the science to try and combat these big challenges that we're facing. So First Nations people are really getting a great store, a great wealth of indicators on what's happening with the climate, on what is the impact of climate change. Do you think that these knowledges should be used and referred to just as much as, say, the ice core samples from the Antarctic, that this is really valuable knowledge and it is telling us what's happening. Yeah, definitely. I'm an Indigenous scientist, but I also have, you know, my Western science background as well. It's really important for us to be understanding and open to include Indigenous science and knowledge and that different worldview into these really rigorous science processes because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been on this continent for an extremely long period of time. There are stories from Northern Territory over to Western Australia to Tasmania and Queensland of the previous sea level rise events that happened about 10,000 to 8,000 years ago. There was another big climate change event where sea levels rose and there are traditional stories that are tied to that event. And people were still able to survive that and continue culture. And I think that people need to realise that just because it's an oral tradition doesn't mean that it's any less than the written system of Western science that still goes through the same observations over time and creating stories that are so in-depth that they've been able to be passed down orally for thousands of generations. And I think that's something that needs to be taken notice of. So how can you take these knowledges that you've collected and use them as a CSIRO 
researcher to help actually adapt them and turn them into strategies? It's still very early on in what I'm trying to do. At the moment, there's a lot of focus on just changing the culture of science internally so that it's more accepted by Western practitioners, managers, scientists, researchers, whoever, that it's just becoming part of the way we do business in that Indigenous science and knowledge has to be included. And how we do that, yeah, it's the, the bit that we still need to, to get right. I think a lot of it is to do with centering Indigenous people and it's really about empowerment and being able to get people to understand that just because the word traditional might be used and it might make you think it's in the past, it's a living culture. It's the oldest living culture in the world. And um, that means that it's contemporary and that it's important for, for modern day society. But it's just because there's all these ontological differences that it makes it difficult for us at the moment to try and embed that. And so we're trying to figure out how we can fit them together whilst protecting community knowledge because that is you know their intellectual property and also making sure we do it in a culturally appropriate way. My name's Nicole Kilby. I'm a proud Wiradjuri and Namba woman from Central West New South Wales. I'm currently working as a policy officer for NATSI WIP, the National Association of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Workers and Practitioners. So Nicole, can you tell me about the impacts that you're seeing through your organisation on the health of your people as a result of climate change? Over the recent years, we've seen climate change posing a significant direct threat to all of our lives, our cultures, livelihoods and our countries. Lately, they're so big that they've been impossible to ignore. I think the first realisation for me was seeing how bad the drought had affected my home country and my mother's home country when we visited Brewarana back in 2018. We went to the weir and it was dry and we remember walking through the riverbed and the kids playing on the rocks, which normally had water flowing over them and it looks so different to how I remember it but it really hit home when I seen how upset my mum was. She'd never seen it so dry and lifeless and um, they say that the Brewarana fish traps could be the world's oldest man-made structure so to see them that way was sad and very worrying. Um, obviously the bushfires over the 2019-2020 summer pose a direct threat to many people. They came so close and obviously devastated communities, which we've seen how bad they were. It came very close to my parents' property on the south coast, so we were all very nervous, but luckily the wind changed right before it reached them. But I think the threats of those fires impacted on the health and wellbeing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities much more than other Australians, given the disparities across all socioeconomic indicators. Yes, and there's a very high proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with chronic health conditions, so these mm-hmm. can only be exacerbated by these extremes in weather. That's right, yeah, and um, I think also because housing remains such a significant challenge, the inadequate housing conditions like reduce the ability to control indoor temperatures, which leads to, you know, many health issues like poor sleep, cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses and poor mental health. Often, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families rely on other family members to assist with transport. So during the fires, I can see how 
that would have caused extra stress for many families in terms of emergency planning and evacuation at the time. And because that also would have affected accessing health services as well as other necessary supplies, like such as food, water and medicines, you know, when roads and towns were cut off, you know, when certain communities probably would have been trapped. And also on top of the worry that they already face when it comes to having enough food and supplies for the family, as well as accessing healthcare and how we are treated compared to non-Indigenous Australians, that would have been pretty scary at the time. From a health practitioner's point of view, what major changes would you like to see to address these impacts of climate change on your people? I think going forward, we need to see a focus on enabling and investing in our assets. I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations should be empowered and supported with sufficient and sustainable resources to grow, strengthen and retain the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workforce, particularly in rural and remote regions. I also think that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities should be provided with sustainable resourcing and equitable power to provide more certainty and control in protecting their country. I think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people continue to demonstrate their enduring resilience and our knowledges should be equally respected and used with Western knowledges to combat climate change. And it's important that our knowledges aren't simply just merged into the one approach. It should avoid knowledge domination and assimilation because we've cared for and lived off country for over 60,000 years and it's time that we're heard and given a seat at the decision-making table to help protect our beautiful country and our communities. And a lot more power for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health practitioners that they lead the responses to the way that they can care for their communities? Yep, that's right. And they're, you know, on the front line, they're on the ground in these communities, you know, that are seeing these impacts directly. They know the people in their communities and they know how to best work with them and how to best be able to help them, especially when it comes to evacuation and planning when it comes to adaptation emergency and evacuation risk management planning, you know, because they know their communities well, they know their people in their communities and what's needed to keep everybody safe. The last word in this podcast from Lewitcha Chair Artie Pat Anderson, an Aliara woman from the Northern Territory. We must restore access to basic rights that lay the groundwork for action that includes appropriate community participation and incorporates cultural, environmental and sustainable design. We must integrate our knowledges and strengthen partnerships to ensure that our collective wisdom and knowledge as Australia's first peoples is integrated into climate adaptation and mitigation planning. In the Uluru Statement from the Heart, we already have the vehicle for supporting such a framework. It wants to correct power imbalances. It puts us for the first time in a position to make the decisions affecting our communities and our families. A greater power balance will bring our wisdom and knowledges to the forefront and directly benefit the Australian nation as a whole. That's it for Crokey Voice's special look at the impact of climate change on the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. This podcast is part of Crokey Conference News Service coverage of the Lewitcher Institute's Climate Change and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Roundtable. You can find out more by using the hashtag IndigenousClimateJustice21 or at croakey.org for related articles. If you like what you're hearing, please follow, like and share and consider subscribing to Crokey News for just 
$80 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you.